Hello, this is the European History Podcast. My name is Daniel. If you like this series, please subscribe. You can always like us on Facebook at the European History Podcast. And if you have any questions or suggestions or corrections, you can always email us at the European History Podcast at gmail.com. So we're talking about Greece, and in the last episode we talked about the expansion of Greek civilization, the growth of colonies throughout the Mediterranean region, and why that happened due to growing population and not growing food supply, uh, food shortage, economic constraints, forced Greeks to leave. It forced Greeks to have to find somewhere else to live and to seek prosperity. We then talked about the first of the two major states, Sparta, and what changed Sparta into a military state, what turned Spartan society inside out, from the individual to the entire community, to a city-state that was obsessed with keeping control over its slave population, the Helots, the former people of the Messenian, Messenian region, after the Second Messenian War. We then discussed in the last episode the establishment of Sparta of the Peloponnesian League, where Sparta would defeat or gain dominance over all of the city-states on the Peloponnesian Peninsula, uh, with one exception, and how Sparta did not have the ability to expend other soldiers to actually subjugate and physically dominate these other city-states because every Spartan was needed to keep control over the helots, the Messenians. And so when Sparta achieved this dominance militarily or otherwise over the other city-states in their part of Greece, they let them stay free. They just forced them to be part of an alliance, to be part of the Peloponnesian League and let Sparta lead the way on foreign policy questions and to supply the Spartan army with a certain amount of men, if, if soldiers, if needed. So that's what we discussed the last episode. Now, let's talk about the other major city-state. I'm sure you're guessing it already. We're talking about Athens today. Athens is very different from Sparta. Athens is also very different from most of the other city-states, in that they were actually slower to develop. Athens was much more slow to change. Uh, compared with the intense pressures, intense transformation of most of the other city-states due to this period of overpopulation and food surplus, food shortage uh, pressure. So Athens is slower than the rest uh, because, for one, Athens is not located on the main, most popular, profitable trade routes at this time period. Also, second reason why Athens doesn't change as quickly is that it was very large. And therefore, since it's very large and has a lot of land, it did not run into, it did not grow into overpopulation. It did not run into food shortages as quickly as other places did. So it didn't run into it for a long time. And nor was the territory of Athens fully as united into a single political identity or polis identity until later. Again, because it's just, it was just physically bigger. So in the 600s BCE, Athens was an arist a traditional aristocratic polis still. And it was divided up into f four cultural socio-political tribes, and each of which had several clans. 
nobles held most of the most and best land. Uh, the noble class dominated religion. They dominated politics. In Athens at this time, there was no written law. The nobles simply rendered decisions based on tradition, which, of course, was almost exclusively also the nobles' self-interest. The society of Athens, the government of Athens, was dominated by the Areopagus. hope I'm pronouncing that right. Please correct me if I'm wrong. The Areopagus, which was the co- a council of nobles, and they governed Athens. They were a council, and they elected each year nine magistrates to basically carry out the functions of the government. And those nine magistrates were called archons. But since these archons were chosen by the council, and also because after a year, each archon could join the council, we see that the Areopagus, that council of nobles, is the real supreme government force, not the archons. So what happens when pressures do come about in Athens to get them to start facing or encountering some change? Well, in the 600s, Athens experiences an agricultural crisis and significant conflicts between groups of nobles. This leads to attempts to establish a a tyranny, like in the other city-states, in some of the other city-states. In 621 BCE, the famous Draco is given authority to publish laws for the first time. So laws are going to be published, they're going to be put down, and they included harsh penalties for crimes, homicides, uh, significant thefts, etc. And for the first time here, we see that Draco sets up law as challenging local control, challenging the control of the nobility. The agricultural crisis in Athens was caused in part because most of the land is used to produce wheat, and it's just is repeated year after year. It is not using enough fertilizer or proper fertilizer. And changing to other products, other agricultural goods, would require investment. And because of this investment requirement, poorer farmers had no choice but go into debt. And the only people you can get money from at this time, of course, are wealthy people, the nobility. So they would, well, poorer farmers, in order to move into different agricultural products, such as olives or wine, etc., they would borrow from the nobles, and they would typically put up a sixth of their next harvest would be the, would be the payback for the noble. He would get a sixth of whatever the poorer farmer is able to come up with. As it doesn't work out, as the, the produce doesn't work out, or there are other problems, or famine, or disease, or a flood, or a drought... The poorer farmers would put up their wives, they would put up their children, and they'd put up themselves as surety for what they're borrowing as slaves. And this led to an inevitable growth in defaulting on what's loaned, and therefore slavery. And once enslaved, many also were sold by the noble Greeks and noble Athenians, sold abroad to other civilizations. That is a recipe for revolutionary pressure on the poor and the general class in Greece, in Athens. And so we're going to see these calls from the grassroots, from the bottom, for the abolition of these debts and for redistribution of land. And so we get to the next 
huge, massive figure in Greek history, which is Solon. But as a trend, as I go forward in this podcast, you'll see that I'm not going to necessarily engage in a, a great man theory of history. We see Solon come forward in this time, and he does make incredible changes. But what we've just discussed before I get into Solon explains why Solon came about. If it wasn't Solon, maybe we could predict it would have been someone else. These changes uh, would come. And these changes are called for based on what's happening with the economy. And what's happening with the economy is being determined by what's happening with agriculture, with the environment. And so I tend to have this uh, interpretation of history that kind of says that a jungle produces a lion, even though lions aren't in the jungle, but you, you understand the phrase. A, a jungle produces the lion. The, the ecosystem allows a lion to exist, to come into existence. A, a lion's not responsible for the jungle. It's the other way around. And so we see this, these pressures boil and simmer and, and come to a head, and we see Solon as a historical figure come about to produce these changes. So in 594 BCE, Solon gets elected as the only archon, and he's given extra powers to write laws and make some changes. So what does Solon do that makes him so significant? Solon cancels current debts. He forbids future loans that were secured by a person himself. So no more you know, promising slavery if the debt's not paid. He bans it. He brings back many Athenians who had been sold abroad into slavery. And this, these changes are referred to as shaking off the burdens. It was kind of clearing the slate because it's just not working out economically. And so we see this as this is kind of like a bankruptcy, bankruptcy proceedings. And the, and the very important function that bankruptcy can play in society, especially if massive debt is starting to affect larger and larger portions of a society. We see this happening here, and this is basically a bankruptcy uh, proceeding. And like bankruptcy, uh, these reforms, they don't solve the fundamental economic problems immediately. And he does, Solon does not redistribute wealth. He doesn't redistribute land. Another significant change Solon puts in is that he forbids the exportation or the export of wheat. And he pushed, rather, for olive oil, olives and olive oil to be the main profit export. This means that uh, Athens is going to have access to the food surplus. Because if you have, consider the situation here, you have these, these wealthy classes controlling the agricultural, the food, controlling the food production. And the people who own this land and are growing this wheat, they know that they, they can get the better price uh, for wheat abroad, selling it to other people. And so while wheat is more valuable as an export, the people in Athens, the people of Greece, they need the wheat to eat. And so the, you have to have it for the existence and continuation of the society. And so Solon forbids the export of wheat. He says it doesn't matter if it's more valuable abroad. We, we have to have it for Athenian people to keep this whole thing going. And so he pushes uh, the export of olive oil. And this sets up the 5th century BCE for Athens to become dependent, actually, on imported wheat because it becomes so profitable for, to, to produce olives that people stop producing wheat. They, they start focusing entirely on these, 
cash crops of olives and grapes for wine. And so they start importing and paying being, and being able to pay for wheat from abroad. So that's a decent solution. Another thing Solon does is he establishes a new system of weights and measures to match other city-states in Greece. And of course, whenever things are more uniform in terms of currency and in terms of weights and measures, you don't have to do conversions. And this and therefore encourages commerce, more commerce done more easily and with more security. And of course, business and investment trade loves that kind of security and predictability. So we have uh, common weights and measures. Solon extends citizenship. He allows people to become citizens of Athens who are foreign artisans because those people are very valuable to the Athenian economy. They're very valuable to Athenian society. So he says, you can be a citizen because we want you to stay here. We want you to keep uh, enriching our city-state. Solon also changes the constitution. He gives citizenship for local tradesmen and merchants, and they are divided into classes, four classes, based on agricultural production. So with Solon, we have citizenship to more people, but we then have divisions. There's different kinds of citizens. Citizens are not all created equal. So you have four different ranks of citizenship under Solon with these changes. You had to be in the top two. Only citizens from the top two classes could become archons, or those magistrates that I mentioned. And only you had to be from the top two to be on the Areopagus. The third class of citizens uh, could be hoplites, uh, those soldiers that I've, I've mentioned before. Third class could be hoplites, and they could be on the council of 400 that would be chosen by all citizens. And 100 could come from each tribe. And so if you're of the third class, you could be a member of this council, which would kind of be a check on the power of the Areopagus. And the lowest class, the fourth class, they're called the Thetes. They were able, they're still citizens, they're able to vote in the assembly. So we have an assembly, we have the council, we have the Areopagus. So the fourth class, they can vote in the assembly along with everyone else for the archons and for the council members and on any other business. They also formed and consisted of the new council, so the Court of Appeal. So even this lowest class, they get to be this Court of Appeal. And eventually, this, will, this court will become the go-to court for almost all cases. So, we see this expansion of democracy under Solon, democratic elements beginning and so on. But even so, it's not completely democratic. You still have slavery, and women half of society, they take no part in political or judicial processes, just like everywhere else at this time. So, role of women is limited. Unfortunately, despite all of these changes, social, economic, political changes from Solon, factional rivalry divisions couldn't be stopped. And a few years uh, into this, no archons could be elected. There was too much dispute and division to elect Ar- archon. This leads to another historical figure of Greece, the tyrant uh, Pisistratus. He was a nobleman. He was a military hero. He was a leader of one of the one of the four tribes, and he seized power. He tried to seize power in 560 BCE. He tried a second time. He kept he kept losing. 
but and he was expelled. And the third time, in 546 BCE, he led a mercenary foreign army, an army from abroad. He, he marched into Athens, and he took over, and he established a tyranny. And it lasted throughout his life, and for part of his son Hipp Hippias' life, life, until 510 BCE. So he comes in 546, and it lasts uh, through his son until 510 BCE. So about 36 years, we see a one of those dynamic, charismatic, revolutionary systems of tyranny come about. And I really hope you're trying not to kind of use your us our usual context of the word tyrant. Uh, tyrants in this context, yes, they have absolute power. Yes, there's going to be repression and cruelty, but they are making these very dynamic changes that are needed. And, they, and the tyrants themselves, they are, they are able to be successful because of these social pressures, these social uh, problems that need to be addressed. So what did Pisistratus do? Uh, well, he, did, he ruled with force, uh, but he instituted expansive uh, program of public works, and urban improvement programs. He expanded and made uh, more kind of... Uh, what's the word? He's, he's making religious festivals much more ornate, much more gaudy, I guess. He's building and expanding temples. He is patronizing poets and artists, mostly for his own kind of aggrandizement of the tyrant's court. Pisistratus centralized government power away from the nobles. And this is this, this pro-democratic function of the tyrant. So we have a tyranny, but this is in the backdrop of there being much more kind of domination from the aristocracy and the nobility. In, in ancient Greece, we're seeing this democracy, but there is this kind of this back influence of noble power influence. And so the role of the tyrant in many of these cases is that the tyrant really kind of limits and dilutes and drains out the influence of the nobility and the aristocracy. So that is a, can serve a pro-democratic function, for the future at least. So it centralized power away from the nobles. Pisistratus appointed circuit judges to go out into the countryside outside of the city of Athens to hear cases. And again, that takes power away from the local nobles, the no local baron who would usually decide disputes and criminal cases. Now, he sends out a judge from Athens to decide a case who is loyal to Athens, at least on paper, but to him, to the tyrant. So we see this, again, exclusion and dilution of noble power. Pisistratus does not make, also, he doesn't make any formal changes to the Constitution or how the government works, necessarily. Solon's assembly stays, the council stays, the courts keep meeting, the magistrates are still elected. What Pisistratus does is he simply merely makes sure that his followers, his loyal people, are dominating all of these institutions. And so what does this look like? This looks like democracy theater. This is like constitutional theater. It looks democratic. Athenians feel like they are participating in the government system. They generally approve of what Pisistratus is, is doing, the reforms he's making. They approve of the reduction of noble influence on these institutions. It just so happens that these institutions are being dominated by the tyrant. They're being dominated by the tyrant's influence. But Athenians still feel like uh, he is 
ruling in a mild way. He's ruling in a popular way. He's ruling with the consensus of the Athenian people. But so this theater, this democracy theater, if you will, it gives Athenians a a growing, consistent taste for democracy for 36 years and self-rule, even though it's not technically happening. It's not really full democracy. So, the tyranny of Pisistratus and his son Hippias comes to an end when a particular clan of Athens that he had banned got with the oracle of Delphi, who was very influential, is a religious religious figure, social figure. And with the oracle's support, they got Sparta to attack the Athenian tyranny, to get rid of the Athenian tyranny. And this shouldn't be a surprise, as I mentioned before, that Sparta is actually the most powerful city-state, and they have a, the Peloponnesian League, and they have the strongest military. Uh, so Spartan marches into Athenian territory in 510 BCE, and Hippias is exiled to the Persian court. He's exiled to Persia. The Spartans, they take over, they get rid of the tyranny in Athens, and they, they favor the leader, the next leader to be the guy named Isagoras. And Isagoras is, basically represents the restoration of those nobles. He wants to restore the traditional, aristocratic, oligarchic ways of Athens, government system of Athens. The people of Athens, they, don't, they, don't, they obviously don't want that. And this other man who is going to be perhaps the most famous uh, for Greek government history, Athenian government history, is Cleisthenes. Cleisthenes, for the first time, appeals broadly to just the general public. He goes out and he says, support me, I support the future government system that Athens should have. We shouldn't go back with Isagoras to the old aristocratic domination. And so the people of Athens rise up en masse in support of Cleisthenes, and they drive out the Spartans and Isagoras. For this reason, Cleisthenes takes the title as the the father, the founder of Athenian democracy. So, let's talk about Cleisthenes. After this tyrant of Pisistratus, who was popular, Cleisthenes diminished the power of local regions and local nobles and factions. Cleisthenes, he restored citizenship to those people who had been disenfranchised by Isagoras. He created the concept of the Demi, which was basically a small town, division of the Athenian territory into small wards or towns, and they were given local democratic control. This reduced tribalism and factionalism and increased devotion to the polis, the city-state as a whole, because every territory now, every part of the Athenian territory is now divided into a unit and that each of those units is now understood as part of the Athenian city-state as a whole. And they're given this local control, democratic control. The Solon's council that he had established of 400 people is turned into a council of 500 under Cleisthenes. And this council is given new powers. They are given the power to prepare legislation for the assembly to discuss. They are given financial power. They are the ones who are going to interact with ambassadors and people representing other city-states or other uh, civilizations. The Council of 500 is given final authority with this assembly of all citizens. 
So you have this council that's kind of assisting the assembly in organizing legislation. In the assembly and in the council, debate was free. It was open. It's not like what we discussed before where it was just you vote yes or no or you really are just voting yes and you're just hearing what the aristocratic leaders are suggesting. Any citizen in this assembly or in the council could file legislation, could propose propose something to become a law and could offer amendments, could say that this should be as changed, or and they could argue for or against decisions and bills. The leaders, by practice still, would do most of the talking, but we still had those very significant pro-democratic expansion of democratic practices. Cleisthenes also, he enlarged the citizenry. He made more people official full citizens. He reduced the power of the aristocrats. He increased the power of the General Assembly. And all of these facts make Cleisthenes able to claim that title of being the father of Athenian democracy. And now, coming on the back of a popular tyrant, Pisistratus, who really served the function, the broad social function of reducing the, the traditional historical dominating power of the nobles and the aristocrats, Pisistratus is also kind of the forebearer for Cleisthenes in making these final official democratic changes. All of these government socioeconomic changes in Athens sets Athens up to a century or more of prosperity uh, thanks to this unity and centralization and expansion of popular power for the people. Our next topic, next episode, we are still talking about Greece. We will talk about life in Greece, the social roles of people, religious beliefs, cultural practices, and we'll also discuss the great challenge for the Greek people uh, meeting in the Persian Wars and how the city-states had to band together uh, to defeat this foreign outside threat challenge invasion. I hope you enjoyed this. Again, if you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. You can like us on Facebook at the European History Podcast. This is Daniel. Join me next time.